brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. On the very day I sat down to write the copy for this episode, something sort of remarkable happened. Quaker Oats announced that they were getting rid of the packaging imagery and changing the name of Aunt Jemima pancake syrup and baking mixes. Aunt Jemima has been a target of criticism for decades or probably longer than that. For a century, the packaging imagery featured a smiling, plump black woman, red kerchief tied on her head, evoking the iconic and blatantly racist image of the southern black mammy. The name and image were drawn from a character of late 19th century minstrel shows named Aunt Jemima, who portrayed the mammy trope, happy, pleasantly plump, endlessly and selflessly serving her white folk on stage. In 1989, the image was revamped, making Aunt Jemima look more like a modern black housewife. But the connotation that she was a domestic servant couldn't be exercised from the brand, as numerous scholars, students, and activists have pointed out over and over again across the decades. Just as one example, when I was a senior in college, my American Studies comprehensive exam had a question about semiotics in American culture, and I wrote about Aunt Jemima. But in the wake of the sweeping change we're living through at this very moment following the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police, Quaker Oats finally decided it was time for Aunt Jemima to go. The imagery will come off the packages within the next few months, and the name will be changed sometime after that. It's remarkable not because it's shocking that the name and brand image are racist, that's not news to anyone, but that Quaker Oats finally admitted that it was, and that they're finally, finally going to do away with it. It's like they finally realized that they had no other choice but to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Aunt Jemima is far from the only racist trope used to sell food. In fact, literally as I was typing this, this was a an episode that I had to keep being like, whoop, edit, okay, nope, another <laughs> edit, because I would write something and then something would change, right? So literally as I was typing this, the Mars Corporation announced that Uncle Ben's rice would, quote unquote, evolve. Something like 24 hours later, cream of wheat, my personal favorite breakfast mush, um, also announced that they would review, also in quotes, their use of a black chef in their brand imagery. 
And the reason that images like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben have so often been used to sell food is because black bodies have always been intertwined with American food culture, specifically, of course, the food culture of the South. Foods that we associate with Southern cuisine, yams, okra, black-eyed peas, sorghum, watermelons, rice, all originated in Africa. Even Coca-Cola, that most quintessential of American beverages, was made from the West African cola nut, a flavorful caffeine-containing nut known to make even the most unpalatable liquid sweet. Historians Judith Carney and Richard Nicholas Razumov have noted that our image of Africa today is of a hungry continent, one chronically unable to feed itself, but that has not always been true. Carney and Razumov point out that Africans added three important cereals, a half dozen root crops, five oil-producing crops, a variety of beans, nuts, and fruits, in addition to the versatile gourd to the world agriculture. Africa had its own thriving agricultural system, and its crops moved around the Indian and Atlantic Oceans in the same way that other crops we hear more about tomatoes, peppers, corn, apples also did. American food, in many ways, is African food. It's not just about individual crops, though. It's also about the preparation of those foods. It's about the literally hundreds of years that enslaved African and African Americans cultivated, cooked, and served those foods for the pleasure of white people, who then appropriated those foods as the Southern cuisine that dominates Food Network and is served up daily at restaurants like Cracker Barrel. Today, as part of our series on food history, we're talking about the history of slavery and food. I'm Sarah. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. I want to start by saying that just like in so many of our episodes, we can't cover every aspect of this topic. I asked for advice from experts on this topic and followed their excellent reading recommendations, but you just can't fit everything in. I'm especially indebted to Megan O'Sullivan, who shared numerous links about the history of Southern cooking, and to UB PhD candidate Tori Nackreiner, a friend of the pod, who is an Africanist and shared the book that I ended up making sort of the backbone of most of this episode. Once I got into the topic... I quickly discovered I just could not follow every lead that folks shared, though. This is a really big and really important topic with like a million tendrils reaching out. So if it intrigues you and you want to know more, check some of the books out of the library or do some research on whatever thing you think that I didn't include enough of. I will list um, some of the recommended readings Um, in the bibliography of this episode so that you can kind of explore things that I didn't get to. 19th century travelers and missionaries popularized the idea that Africa was a dark continent, one that was mysterious and unknown to the rest of the civilized world. But that ignores the continent's long involvement in global trade networks. In the ancient and medieval world... In the ancient and medieval world, African goods were much sought after, ranging from ivory and gold to melagueta pepper, also known as grains of paradise, which were prized in Europe and the Middle East. Food traveled too. 
sorghum, millet, and several legumes made their way around the ancient world. These crops traveled on trade routes such as the Islamic trans-Saharan caravan routes across North Africa, which brought Ethiopian coffee to the Arabian Peninsula and Middle East and transported the kola nut and melagueta pepper to Europe. In fact, sorghum, a drought-tolerant cereal grain, was brought by migrant Berbers to Muslim Spain through Morocco, where it became a staple part of the Spanish diet. Ibn Khaldun, an Islamic scholar who lived in Seville, wrote that Spaniards were healthy because they subsisted on a diet of sorghum and olive oil. The African crops that moved around the ancient and medieval world, revolutionizing Middle Eastern and European cuisines, also became a critical factor in making the Atlantic slave trade possible. Take, for instance, the banana. Domestication of the banana began in Southeast Asia. It may have also simultaneously been domesticated in New Guinea, but I'm not sure about you know how, how that happened in two places at the same time, but these things do happen. The banana, which was considered excellent food for sea voyages because of its starchy, edible, and hearty stem, then traveled with sailors across the Indian Ocean to East Africa. Bananas and their close cousin, the plantain, were then propagated in Africa, where they became part of the food culture in a variety of ways. The fruit is sometimes mashed into stews or baked or boiled. The roots eaten like a potato or a sweet potato or sometimes also fed to livestock. And the leaves are used as a cooking vessel. Bananas and plantains also have very high yields, making them common and easily accessible. They intertwine with the history of slavery when the Portuguese and Spanish began to colonize the Madeira and Canary Islands off the coast of Morocco. So these islands were used to cultivate sugar cane. Avril put together an entire episode on sugar and slavery that we highly recommend that you listen to. It's another good example of how food and enslavement are deeply interconnected. In that episode, she tells more of the story of the use of these islands for sugar cultivation and how it linked to the larger story of the transatlantic slave trade. So we won't cover that territory here. Um, And as April discussed at length, sugar is extremely dangerous and laborious to produce. It requires lots of human labor and human labor requires calories. That's where bananas come in. During the late 15th century, the Portuguese began to replace the dwindling native Guanche population on the islands um, who they had originally enslaved for sugar cultivation cultivation um, with enslaved Africans imported from the continent. Judith Carney and Richard Nicholas Razumov believe that this was when bananas and plantains were first introduced to the Madeira and Canary Islands. The Portuguese and Spaniards were impressed with the fruits, which were easy to grow and pretty tasty. From these initial sugar islands, the banana traveled across the Atlantic, at first with exploratory expeditions and later on slave ships. There's also a, a really tragic sort of epilogue to this initial story about bananas and the slave trade because the same logic is used later on by American plantation owners in uh, places like um, Guatemala that were used to produce various different kinds of of, um, food crops and bananas initially were, were used or were planted to feed the folks that were doing various different you know, you know, planting and growing, uh, cultivating of things for American consumption in South America, Central America. And then 
at some point, some enterprising person was like, oh, bananas are great and Americans would love them. And so that turned into an American plantation system focused on banana cultivation. Mm -hmm. And this is like sort of the toxic soup that kind of brings Americans into places like Guatemala makes the American government invested in the government of Guatemala mm-hmm. and then ends up leading to like the Guatemalan civil war, which lasts like 30 years. Mm-hmm. So um, bananas have a really terrible history. <laughs> they sure do. Which is really kind of odd when you think about just how ubiquitous bananas are in our lives today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> They're carrying a lot of baggage. Yeah. You're likely already quite familiar with the Columbian Exchange, the exchange of crops and livestock between continents around the Atlantic world. This was like a a really big deal. I know in the curriculum when I was teaching U.S. history to seventh graders, for instance. So this is something that a lot of people are introduced to really early in their history education. However, traditionally, African goods have not been understood as a significant part of that exchange. Take, for instance, this quote from Alfred Crosby, the historian who actually coined the term Columbian Exchange in his 1972 book, The Columbian Exchange. (laughs) Quote, the importance of American foods in Africa is more obvious than in any other continent of the old world. For in no other continent except the Americas themselves is so great a proportion of the population so dependent on American foods. Very few of man's cultivated plants originated in Africa. And so Africa has had to import its chief foods from Asia and America. So Talk about portraying Africa as the hungry continent, right? Unable to feed itself without the help of non-Africans. He's literally saying um, Africa is the only place other than America that is so reliant on American crops, right? That's just such a contemporary point of view. Like, he's a historian. Like, doesn't he know that historically I, that wasn't the case <laughs> it's so weird right no it's just it seems like such a such a uh an oversight and as you said like something so influenced by sort of our image of africa today right not only have we underappreciated africa's role in the Colombian exchange we also typically think of the Colombian exchange as being about the transport of crops specifically to be cultivated for production In other words, we think about the tomato being transported from the Americas to be grown in Spain or in Italy, and the apple being carried from Europe to be grown in, say, New England orchards, specifically for agricultural purposes, right? It's it's being transported because your intent is to grow it in this new location. But a significant factor that sometimes gets lost that a great number of crops and largely African crops were transported with the sole purpose of serving as provisions on slave ships. So they weren't being transported to plant. They were being transported to feed the human beings on slave ships Mm -hmm. and then ended up in a new location. The Atlantic slave trade was entirely profit-driven, and while we should all, of course, be very familiar with the nature of the Middle Passage, the ways that infectious disease ravaged these ships, the high death tolls, the other horrors, 
the goal was to deliver saleable human cargo. So to keep enslaved Africans in a state of relative health, slave ships needed to have stores of nutritious food. Europeans initially tried to provision themselves and their slave ships with their own goods, but found it difficult. They typically only partially loaded ships while in home ports, meaning they needed to take on the bulk of their provisions in African ports. This wasn't their first choice. While it wasn't entirely clear in the sources why exactly they couldn't just fill up with stuff in Portugal or Spain, it seems reasonable to assume that it was more costly and that it meant that goods spent longer on the ship, increasing the chances it would go bad well before arrival in the Americas. And I should also say that Part of the reason that they brought anything from Portugal or from Spain was not to feed the enslaved people, but to feed the crew. Mm -hmm. Because the crew was like, I'm not going to eat plantains. I want to eat olive oil and drink wine. Mm -hmm. That's what they were, you know, reliant on their own cuisine. And they were intolerant of having to eat other crops. Right. Um, The first attempt at a solution was to cultivate European foodstuffs in Africa, but they quickly found that even crops that enjoyed the sunny southern European weather were not hardy enough to survive the tropics. This is maybe a side note, but this became sort of a cultural sticking point. As we've seen time and again in our Ghost Dance Religion episode, for instance, a sign of civilization was European-style agriculture, with heavy emphasis on wheat production. In the Spanish and Portuguese colonies in America and Africa, wheat was deemed particularly critical because it was the grain that had to be used to make the bread used in communion, but wheat would not grow in either location. At first, this was sort of panic-inducing, but eventually, Europeans were forced to throw up their hands and agree to allowing for communion wafers made from indigenous grains. The horror! I know! I know. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, what this also meant was that they couldn't grow European crops in Africa for years on slave vessels and instead had to rely on indigenous African foodstuffs. Quick question, was there wheat in like the Levant in like ancient times? Like what was, was the Last Supper actually wheat bread? That's a great question. Probably, I feel like it probably wasn't. I, I have absolutely no idea. I really don't know anything about ancient Middle Eastern bread making. Right. But that's a really good point. Like the whether or not it's historically truly historically accurate that the the communion has to be wheat based, I don't know. But I do know that there was a lot of anxiety, especially for the Spanish, about using non-wheat grains for right. the communion. And so there's this that's great so story. Oh, you know who's the what's the name of the historian who writes about um the conquistadors, the bodies of the conquistadors. What's her name? Oh, Rebecca Earl. So there's this great anecdote in Rebecca Earl's book about the bodies of the conquistadors, um, where she talks about this kind of fight over um, using corn or maize or some other kind of indigenous American grain to make mm-hmm. communion wafers where eventually they kind of, the, the Spanish literally just were like, oh, whatever, and kind of threw up their hands. And so the Lord's Prayer in Nahuatl ended up kind of 
being adapted to say, give us this day our daily tortillas instead of <laughs> give us this day our daily bread, which yeah. really just delights my soul. I just think that yeah. that's wonderful. I like that. I like that too. Anyway, there are two exceptions to that, uh, you know, the, this process that Marissa is explaining. As slaving expeditions began to diminish the population in West Central Africa and the Atlantic slave trade placed increasing demands on food production, it became difficult to buy sufficient quantities of African crops to support the immense needs of the slave trade. Frustrated with the time that it took to produce African grains like millet and sorghum, which have a longer um, growing season and unable to grow European crops in Africa, the Portuguese began to stock their ships in the Americas with American crops, particularly manioc and maize, before setting off on their return trip to Africa. Manioc is a root, also called cassava or yucca, which is probably how you've heard it before, that can be pounded into flour. It resisted rotting even in high heat and humidity. And it's calorie rich, perfect for use on these slave ships. An example of how perverse the slave systems of this era became, the Portuguese used enslaved indigenous people in the Americas to produce and prepare manioc flour to be transported to Africa to provision garrisons, to be traded for enslaved Africans, and to provision African slave ships back to the Americas. Eventually, Europeans cut out the American leg of this trade by just bringing manioc and maize to West Africa to be cultivated and prepared by enslaved Africans themselves, particularly by Africans considered less marketable in the transatlantic trade, specifically children and the elderly. So to hearken back to Alfred Crosby's quote about Africa not contributing to the Columbian exchange and instead just sucking in resources, well, if that is the case, it's likely because European slavers made it necessary. The demand for goods to provision slave ships literally changed the landscapes of West Africa. Not only did the introduction of American crops change the African agricultural landscape and diet, it led to a redistribution of the West African population. All along the coast, European colonizers built forts called castles, often designed to hold enslaved people before they were loaded onto slave ships. Populations then shifted to established towns around those castles, drawn by the immense need the Europeans had to feed those in their garrisons, both working Europeans and captive Africans, and to stock the slave ships. As early as 1602, travelers to the Gold Coast, now part of Ghana, remarked on the bustling markets that surrounded the Portuguese castle Mina, which the Dutch later renamed El Mina, which later became one of the largest slave trading forts in West Africa. By the close of the 17th century, the town around Mina swelled to between 15,000 and 20,000 people and was the largest European outpost on the African continent. The passage from Africa to the Americas was long and arduous and required massive amounts of foodstuffs to feed enslaved cargo and even, to a certain extent, the crew. Slave ship captains leaving Angola budgeted two liters of manioc flour per captive per day, plus smaller amounts of beans, corn, and other forms of flour. The French ship The Diligent stocked African-grown millet, cowpeas, and 1,000 plantains. And I should say, we'll come back to cowpeas, but cowpeas are black-eyed peas. 
Once on board, enslaved women were most often made to do food preparation. This meant freeing up the white crew to do the work of keeping the ship moving and, of course, you know, surveilling the enslaved population, keep them from revolting or whatever, while also saving the cost of having to have a white cooking crew. The unique needs of food preparation for an enslaved population influenced the very design of slave ships. While cooking areas were typically below decks, on slave ships, at least one cooking space, usually a wood-burning cooking hearth, was kept on the deck so that enslaved women could be watched while they cooked. Another cooking space was below in a space near both the officers' quarters and the area where enslaved women and children were held, keeping both the authorities and the cooks in close proximity to the cooking space. The work of feeding those on the slave ship was physically demanding and difficult. Rice was often purchased in the hull because it was cheaper, which meant that women needed to remove the hulls using the traditional African tools of mortar and pestle. The labor of food preparation intermingled with the horrific experience of bondage on slave ship. One lithograph that Carney and Rosimoff described in their book depicted a large pot of food being passed from the cooking area to enslaved men in which both food and weapons were featured prominently. In the 1770s, British naturalist Henry Smeathman wrote, Alas, what a scene of misery and distress is a full slaved ship in the rains. The clanking of chains, the groans of the sick, and the stench of the hole is scarce supportable. Two or three slaves thrown overboard every other day, dying of fever, flux, measles, worms altogether. All the day, the chains rattling or the sound of the armor riveting some poor devil just arrived and galling heavy irons. The women slaves in one part beating rice and mortars to cleanse it for cooking, end quote. So we see food preparation portrayed as one of the many miseries of bondage. Right. It's sort of all sort of mingled in together, right? The sound of beating rice and mortars is mingling in the air with all these other horrible sounds and sights of of enslavement. I think that's just a really powerful image. I wanted to say, too, before we moved on, that uh, Marissa mentioned that Carney and Rosimoff described this lithograph of um, food and weapons being sort of featured in the same image and um because of the circumstances of trying to put these episodes together in you know a pandemic when libraries are closed i had the e version of this book and it didn't include any of the lithographs so i couldn't actually see it i could just read the description because i'm sure of copyright issues with the the images Mm -hmm. so if I can find it through extensive Googling, I will try to include it in the show notes, but it even I wasn't able to see it, so I apologize in advance. Incidentally, the unhusked rice that was cheaper for ship captains to stock up on was also still viable as a seed, meaning that what was brought to the Americas on ships for provisions also, both accidentally and intentionally, was planted in the New World. The quote-unquote new world. (laughs) While it seems that most of the African rice that grew in the Americas was accidentally distributed, there are also powerful oral histories that exist across South America that tell the story of rice planting as a form of resistance. 
In Guyana, there's a story of an enslaved African woman who carries grains of rice in her hair, which she brought to the maroon community she later lived in. This is how rice cultivation was brought to Guyana's maroon descendants. In another version of that same story, this one from Brazil, the enslaved woman tucks grains of rice into her children's hair so they will have them should they be sold away from her. Yet another version of that story, also from Brazil, follows the children to the plantation where they were sold. Their white master discovers grains of rice in a boy's hair, and the boy explains that the seeds are an African food. Given that this area in Brazil developed rice plantations, we see how the enslaved used food to maintain a link to Africa and how Europeans in the Americas benefited from both African crops and the African expertise in how to cultivate those crops. We know from primary accounts that some African crops like rice, bananas, and millet were first propagated by Europeans in the Americas trying to find ways to feed huge populations of enslaved laborers. But we don't have direct evidence of how other crops like the yams, other tubers, and plantains were first planted in the Americas. And oral histories like those ones Sarah just shared about rice often claimed that African crops were introduced by Africans themselves. There's evidence of Europeans first encountering certain crops that we know originated in Africa in their slaves' gardens. Carney and Razumov call this a shadow world of cultivation, where Africans cultivated crops likely left over from slave ship provisions. European plantation masters and overseers encouraged enslaved men and women to cultivate their own food in their own gardens because it made their jobs easier. As a missionary in the Danish colony on St. Croix wrote in the 18th century, from this plot they are to produce their own means of sustenance. The yield is generally great enough that it provides the diligent cultivator with a surplus beyond his basic needs, and from this he can provide himself with other commodities. This arrangement relieves the master of any further cares concerning the slaves than when the essentials for their substances are handed to them in kind, as is the case on several English plantations on St. Croix." End quote. But whether they first planted the crops or not, enslaved Africans shaped the food landscape of American slavery through the agricultural knowledge that they brought with them. After all, as Carney and Razumov pointed out, of all the peoples who came to live in the Americas, enslaved Africans were the only ones who had any familiarity with the crops that would survive in a tropical or semi-tropical climate, or who had any experience with cultivation. In Barbados, Englishman Richard Ligon wrote that taro, a root that became a staple component of slave diets was introduced and grown by enslaved Africans themselves, likely initially planted from the stores of the root used during the Middle Passage. In the Carolinas, three West African staples, rice, cattle, and cow peas, became so entrenched in the colony's agricultural economy that they ended up feeding much of the British West Indies. Then later, Carolina exported rice to much of the Atlantic world. Yeah, and even now... Carolina, like South Carolina particularly, has like a rice mm-hmm. culture. Like rice is really important to like South Carolina cuisine. But Carolina rice is, I, I think there's a brand called Carolina rice, but. Okay, no, yeah. And I knew the Carolinas that rice cultivation was huge there. And that is why the enslaved population was so much larger than the white population. Yes. Because it was a very um, labor intensive crop. Right, especially early in American history 
later on that population density moves into the deep south where where cotton is booming right Mm -hmm. but yeah initially south carolina that's you know it's largely rice not cotton Mm -hmm. i want to shift here a little bit away from the story of crop exchange and spend the rest of the episode talking a bit more about how those foods and the people who prepared those foods came to shape what we think of now as american southern cuisine We've already established that many of the foods that have become staples of Southern and even American cuisine came from Africa by way of the transatlantic slave trade. But as black chattel slavery became an institution, those foods became more than just subsistence crops grown to feed large populations of enslaved laborers like they had originally, for instance, in the Sugar Islands. And this process happens outside of the United States, too, of course. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not happening in, say, Guyana or Brazil or these other places we've talked about. African foods and enslaved cooks shaped the cuisines of many cultures across the slaveholding Atlantic world. But I want to drill down and focus just on American Southern cooking, partly because I'm an Americanist. <laughs> <laughs> We started the episode by talking about Aunt Jemima, the iconic and problematic image used to sell pancake mixes and fake maple syrup, which personally, I believe is already a sin. (laughs) Well, that's because Um, you live in a place where you can get maple syrup easily and you could. That is absolutely correct. (laughs) Yes. I... I remember once not that long ago, my husband insisting that we buy fake maple syrup and have it in the house for the kids, like because the kids were eating too much of the. Yeah, they can appreciate the real thing. And I was like, (laughs) that is wrong. That is just I can't like it. It really I wasn't even just like jokingly mad. I was like, no, if we buy fake maple syrup, we are giving in. Like. I'm kind of with James on that one. It's like why I don't let my kids eat my Honeycrisp because it's like, you can't appreciate this, you little twerp. <laughs> it's you know? too good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're older, you will appreciate good maple syrup. <laughs> anyway, Aunt Jemima was a character that emerged from blackface minstrelsy based, of course, on the stereotype of the beloved Southern Mammy. Even if you're sketchy on the history of all this stuff, you're likely very familiar with the Mammy stereotype. She's an older, sexless, matronly black woman wearing a simple dress, a kerchief, and an apron, usually with another kerchief tied around her head. For decades, that's how Aunt Jemima appeared on the the products, on Aunt Jemima's products. Mm-hmm. The Mammy figure represented a romanticized version of the black women, both enslaved and working after emancipation as domestics, who raised white children in wealthy Southern households. The Mammy was central to the rewriting of antebellum Southern history because she embodied, in the minds of whites, the love that enslaved women had for their white families. In fact, the Mammy was so central to Southern lost cause mythology that in 1923, the United Daughters of the Confederacy worked to get a memorial built in Washington, D.C. to honor the Mammies of the Old South, who, according to North Carolina Congressman Charles Stedman, desired no change in their condition of life and who now look back at those days as a happy golden hours of their lives, end quote, barf. Isn't that so gross? Yes. <laughs> like gross. they they didn't want to be freed, right. right? They wanted to continue to care for their white families. It's literally exactly what 
slaveholders said about slaves, yes. not even just enslaved. Like, I mean, this applies to ens- enslaved mammies and yes. mammies after emancipation is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Like, that's what slave, that's what, oh, well, like, you know, I think there's a couple, um, uh, slave narratives that were taken as part of, um, the new deal, you know, the, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the workers, the works progress WPA. administration oral histories. Right. Yeah. And, and the ones that were kind of spread around by white supremacists were ones of people who were like, Hey, after emancipation, it was really hard. Cause I had nothing. Yes. And, you know, before emancipation, I at least had, you know, a place to eat and blah, blah, blah. And so then right. they're like, see, black people love being slaves. Yes. And, it's and I'll like, say, I'll say that that is still something that I struggle with when I teach the, um, the, especially the Civil War class, because I thought when I first started teaching it, oh, I'll have them read whichever WPA narrative they want to read. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll just, they can go in and they can just read one. And then I discovered that, like, that wasn't working because they were saying exactly that. Mm-hmm. Like, they would find a, a narrative where somebody said, like, you know, when you know b- before the war we were all together and life was good and like i played with the white children and they would immediately be like life was better before emancipation mm-hmm. and i'm like that's not exactly what's happening here right like right. there's a lot more nuance to this and so i found that i had to either kind of do a lot of hand holding for them to be able to properly interpret those or i had to just like pick specific narratives because right. otherwise they get this idea that for some people, life was better. And it's it's very complicated to parse that. Even for mammies, um, you know, there is a mix of emotions where, like, some Right. And you want to honor that. The fact that, yeah, right. they did feel some security and they did feel some regard or even love for their master's yeah. children or whatever. Like, right. there is room for that and also room for the fact that they were being oppressed like both yeah can they be were happening. still enslaved right? right and the bad conditions uh, that they faced after emancipation were because they were given nothing because everything was right. taken from them or they weren't allowed to own anything to begin with that's right. not yeah. that's not their own fault that's the fault yeah. of the people who enslaved them anyway so exactly right can't... It's because of jim crow right. right but um one other one other plug that i want to make here is that um, Carol Emberton, my my colleague at UB and my advisor, um, is working on a book right now that m- at least one of the chapters, I'm not sure how pervasive it is, but at least one of the chapters t- focuses on this question of home for formerly enslaved people, emancipated people, because for many of them, they have super mixed emotions because plantations were both the site of their horrific enslavement and also their ancestral homes right like the bodies of their loved ones were buried at these plantations and so it's it's very complicated it's not enough to say like they didn't want any change in their condition of life and they looked back on those days as the happy golden hours right Mm -hmm. they may have in some senses but it was also the place that represented their enslavement right Lots of complicated stuff happening. Right. They're being evicted from their homes at the same time that they were being freed. Right. So it's wonderful, but also terrifying and sad. Back to the show and (laughs) us, (laughs) instead of our endless pontificating. um, But Mammy characters also hearken to the centuries old history of black women cooking for white families, both while enslaved and after emancipation as domestics. 
The long history of black women preparing food for white families, nourishing their bodies in a fairly intimate way, was whitewashed and romanticized into a comforting memory. This memory was embodied by Aunt Jemima, who was used to sell convenience foods to white women who might not be able to afford a black domestic, but who could at least imagine themselves eating the comforting foods a mammy like Aunt Jemima might prepare. The trope begins, of course, in slavery. Historian Kelly Fonto Dietz illustrates the intimate history of enslaved cooks in her book, Bound to the Fire. One chapter opens with the story of Suki, a cook on a plantation in Surrey County, Virginia. She arose well before sunup to bake bread and begin preparations for her white master's meals. She planned meals and cooked to order. When guests came to the plantation, she planned menus and oversaw the cooking of elaborate feasts. One of my favorite examples of this trope of the black woman cooking for white families is actually yes. from Forrest Gump, mm-hmm. um, which I recognize like a lot of historians are like, Forrest Gump ruined everything. I don't personally believe that. It's one of my favorite movies ever. Same. But um, I love this scene because I think it captures this idea really powerfully. There's this, um, they depict Bubba's mother as a cook for white families and that and they kind of show the lineage of all of her ancestors who going back all the way into the antebellum Mm -hmm. were cooks for white families and they show them all like coming through the kitchen door with food to give to these white families but then when Forrest gives Bubba's mother the money that he's earned from Bubba Gump Shrimp Company, the first thing she does is hire a white cook. Mm-hmm. And you see the white cook coming in through the kitchen door to give food to Bubba's mother, who is sitting there you know, very pleased with herself. Yeah. So um, I also I love that, that scene. It's like my favorite. <laughs> yeah. It's just a, it's a great encapsulation of this idea that black women have been the cooks for white families for generations, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of embedded in our culture. Mm-hmm. We sometimes hear that the enslaved who worked in the so-called big house had easier lives and more privileges than those used in agricultural labor. But if you look at Suki, the, the enslaved woman that Marissa just mentioned, if you look at her life as a cook, it required skill, difficult physical work, extreme temperatures, and confined her to a very small space for literally 24 hours a day. When the final work of the day had been completed, she slept upstairs in the kitchen building. And then in the high heat of the summer, sometimes she would sleep in the kitchen yard. But her work was never ending, even during the night, when she had to tend fires, ensure that food prep was completed for the following day, and the day's cooking mess had been cleaned up. And like field hands watched carefully by an overseer, Suki and other cooks like and other cooks like her were surveilled closely by white mistresses. After all, enslaved cooks were entrusted with expensive stores of sugar and spices, with alcohol, with sharp knives, fire, and of course, the very nourishment for white bodies, which could be easily poisoned, spat in, or otherwise adulterated. There was a fine line between surveillance and separation, though. Virginian plantations, for instance, as Kelly Fanto Dietz describes, were largely built with external kitchens. For decades, tour guides on plantation tours explain that these external kitchens were built because of fire risk. But Dietz points out that this is a weak explanation, since plenty of other homes and buildings around the United States 
states and Europe were built with kitchens inside the house. Instead, Dietz argues that external kitchens were a way of creating a separation between white space and black space, removing enslaved cooks from the formal spaces of the main plantation house. Between the main house and the kitchen were often covered walkways, sometimes called whistling walks. Tour guides often explained that this was to ensure that rain or other stuff didn't fall into the food. Still, other versions recounted that whistling walks were so named because enslaved cooks and servants were required to whistle while they carried trays of food from the kitchen to the dining room to prove that they couldn't be eating the foods designated for the white family or guests. In Michael Twitty's memoir, in which he recalls years of working on these historical plantations reenacting black kitchen staff, he writes that the story of whistling walks was always told with a sense of cutesy charm, like it was a quaint relic of the Old South. But in reality, Dietz explains these covered walkways were actually designed to make it harder to see the enslaved cooks and servants carrying food into the main house. Constructed largely in the early 19th century, as slavery was becoming a topic of major debate around the U.S. and the world, these passageways helped to obscure the reality of just who was doing the work of cooking. Another sort of weird example of this comes from our old friend Thomas Jefferson, who, as you probably know, constructed all sorts of strange contraptions in his home, Monticello. In his formal dining room, he had a system of dumb waiters built so that food could appear in the dining room without enslaved people having to make an appearance at all. He even used a tiered table that could hold all of the courses of the meal in sort of layers so guests could sort could serve themselves in sort of order of course. I'm using the passive voice here saying like he had this system of dumb waiters built um, because, you know, he did not build them himself. Mm -hmm. Right. He designed them, but he wasn't, you know, swinging a hammer in his dining room. As an aside here, Jefferson also had covered porches built around the outside of Monticello that are no longer there. They were pulled off at some point, and I think in the late 19th century. Um, and they were these these porches that were called, I think, Venetian patios that were enclosed with louvered blinds. And historian Annette Gordon-Reed, who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> She's so amazing. Um, she argues that those were designed particularly to make it possible for Sally Hemings to enter and exit Jefferson's private rooms without being seen. So she kind of pushes back on arguments that his his children and grandchildren later make that it's like nobody was ever going into and out of his bedroom because his bedroom was his private space. And she's like, bullshit. He had all of these closed porches built around his bedroom so that Sally Hemings could like exit from one door, go through these Venetian patios and then get into his bedroom from the outside. Like he had a door into one of those patios. But so. also don't we know, I mean, it's all bullshit because we know that genetically like, his, yes, like, Oh yes. That there are plenty of black people who have Jefferson's DNA. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it is bullshit for many reasons. <laughs> okay. But this is the this specific argument that they tried to make, which was like, nobody ever could get into his bedroom because it was his sacred space. She's like, no, that, that's not a thing. Anyway, hiding black cooks in the same way was also important to maintaining the image that it was white plantation mistresses who were the masterminds behind delicious recipes and elaborate feasts. 
While enslaved cooks certainly had more knowledge of cooking and ingredients than their mistresses did, mistresses believed or wanted to believe that they were the ones controlling it all from above. One account from after the Civil War tells the story of a cook named Lishy, who the mistress believed was stupid and lazy. She told Lishy exactly how many biscuits should be made from two quarts of flour, not just because she wanted exactly 36 biscuits, but because, quote, grandmother was safeguarding Lishy's morals and family interests with a provision that was second nature. Oh, the elegant thrift of those southern housewives, more productive of comfort than the most lavish expenditure. She's also super gross, right? White mistresses, at least in their own minds, had to keep a close eye on black cooks who had to be trusted, but also could not be trusted. Controlling ingredients allowed white mistresses an amount of control that they could not really have over black cooks. As Dietz writes, quote, the only real control the mistress had was her ability to dole out provisions such as sugar, spices, and butter. Cooking did sometimes allow enslaved people a measure of freedom. George Washington's chef, Hercules Posey, became something of a celebrity when he came to Philadelphia to cook at the president's house. Hercules was renowned for being an extremely talented chef. He was handsome, charismatic, and well-dressed. Dietz refers to him as America's first celebrity chef because he was more like Gordon Ramsay than a plantation cook. He demanded respect and controlled the kitchen with iron discipline. Keeping Hercules in Philadelphia was tricky, though, because Pennsylvania had a state law that automatically freed any slave that lived in the Commonwealth for six months. So Washington took Hercules back to Virginia at regular intervals to circumvent the law. Eventually, in 1797, during a trip back to Mount Vernon, Hercules ran away, never to return, and never to appear in the historical record again. Thomas Jefferson also had an enslaved chef. Uh, James Hemings, who was the brother of Martha Wales Jefferson and Sally Hemings, so Jefferson's white wife and his enslaved lover. And I'm using lover there. Many people will argue with that. I'm following Annette Gordon-Reed's sort of uh, her her, uh, example. Jefferson inherited the Hemings family when his father-in-law passed away, and at Monticello, James learned to cook under other enslaved cooks. But when Jefferson moved to France in 1784 to act as the American ambassador, he took James with him out of his Francophile desire to have a classically trained French chef. Jefferson is so freaking weird. (laughs) He's like, I want to have my own French chef. I know. So James learned French and received formal training in the kitchens of renowned chefs. Almost 10 years later, after using his training to cook for Jefferson and his guests for countless fancy French meals and becoming well-known for his skill, he negotiated his freedom with Jefferson under the condition that he would train his brother Peter in the ways of French cooking first. When he completed that task in 1795, Jefferson manumitted him. James then moved around a lot. He lived back at Monticello for a time and then in 1801, died apparently by suicide. Most plantations did not have cooks trained in French kitchens, but instead they had enslaved cooks who learned to cook as apprentices to older enslaved cooks, part of generations of enslaved cooks. 
White slave owners not only reaped rewards from that by eating delicious food, as Washington and Jefferson did, but also by claiming the very cuisine as their own. Even today, Southern culture boasts of Southern hospitality, a unique sense of welcome and abundance shared with guests. Virginian mistresses were expected to provide this hospitality with lavish picnics and parties and could gain reputations as excellent hosts if they were successful. But that hospitality was not actually a result of the work of the mistress, but the enslaved. Dietz writes about the Ingleside Plantation near Norfolk, Virginia, which had a reputation for its lavish hospitality. Writing later in her life, a white girl who grew up on the plantation recalled, quote, home-cured hams and great platters of fried chicken, roasts and joints and vegetables innumerable, such big pones of lightened cornbread and beaten biscuits, the like of which only the old-time Southern cooks could make, end quote. Of course, by old-time Southern cooks, the author of this reminiscence is actually referring to enslaved cooks. Right. So she's making it sound as though... Right. She's just talking about like old time Southern cooks like my grandma or Mm -hmm. like my mom. But what she's actually remembering or hearkening back to is antebellum enslaved people doing this cooking. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just African crops sowed by enslaved hands that shaped Southern cuisine, but enslaved cooks who designed menus and prepared feasts that trained white Southern palates. Michael Twitty, who is sort of a modern-day evangelist for reminding Americans of the black roots of Southern food, recounts an amazing story about Robert E. Lee praising the cow pea, or the black-eyed pea, for keeping the South fed during the lean years of the Civil War. Apparently, Lee said that the beans were, quote, the only unfailing friend the Confederacy ever had. (sighs) And the black-eyed pea, you guessed it came from West Africa and was grown in the American South by the very people the Confederacy was fighting to keep in bondage. That sort of like, whoa, that just kind of blows your mind. The irony, yeah. Yeah. Today, Southern cuisine owes much to the work of both enslaved and free black cooks. Take, for instance, the woman who used to be, (laughs) emphasis on used to be, the queen of Southern cooking, Paula Dean, for example. Dean ran a restaurant in Savannah, which I went to and was actually very delicious, and later on became a Food Network staple. She wrote tons of cookbooks and even published a magazine. She even came to sort of embody Southern hospitality with her thick Georgia accent. One article I read actually referred to her as a white mammy figure, which I thought was really interesting. If by interesting, you mean gross. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's gross, but it's interesting to say, like, she came to almost sort of take over the idea of the mammy, but in this white way. In this, like, white, now rich lady kind of way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. In a a fake way, right? Mm -hmm. Right. But starting in 2012, um, allegations started to come out that Dean was hella racist and often abused her black waitstaff. She apparently helped her brother to host his dream of an Old South-themed traditional, quote-unquote traditional, Southern wedding, complete with, and I'm quoting, blacks serving whites. She admitted to using the N-word. 
more specific to our topic here today, Dean also apparently made her career on the recipes of a black woman named Dora Charles, who cooked at that Savannah restaurant, which was called the Lady and Sons, and developed many of its recipes. But you could also say that all of white America has learned to take black food cultures and reap benefit from them, not just Southern cooks, right? Remember, I don't know if you remember this, Marissa, it was just a couple months ago, there was all this hysteria around Brooklyn barbecue restaurants. Um, I think on Instagram, we're taking pictures of these like anemic cuts of meat and calling it like down home barbecue and it would be like this like very small piece of brisket or something Mm -hmm. and people were like losing their minds because they were like that's not barbecue like barbecue doesn't come from Brooklyn Mm -hmm. Um, but to take that one step further barbecue is according to Lauren Michelle Jackson the blackest cooking technique within U.S. borders but rarely do we see black barbecue joints in the pages of Food and Wine magazine or in the pages of New York Times or on Twitter, right? Like this uproar was all about these Brooklyn hipsters mm-hmm. posting pictures of like <laughs> boring barbecue. Right. Um, so an- another way of kind of reaping the benefits of this black food culture. There is so much more to the story of slavery and Southern food and the black history of Southern food. There's the history of black farmers during Reconstruction and the black women who fed the civil rights activists. There's the history, as I said, of barbecue, but we just cannot cover it all. So get out there and start reading. Um, One last thing before we kind of, you know, open this up for discussion. Before I forget, I want to say a big thank you to Kelly Sharp, who's a historian at Furman University and who generously offered to share her excellent forthcoming article on race and farming in Charleston, South Carolina, um, which I had every intention on including when she sent it to me, but I ran out of time and I ran out of space. And frankly, I just ran out of energy <laughs> to get it into this episode. I'm like 100 months pregnant, mm-hmm. I should say. Yeah. So I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you to Kelly. And I want to encourage all of you to check out her work. Her article uh, will be out soon in Agricultural History, and it's called Sowing Diversity, the Horticultural Roots of Truck Farming in Coastal South Carolina. And she also has a book coming out next April through Oxford University Press called Provisioning Charleston, How Race Shaped Food and Eating in the Antebellum South. So super important topics, very relevant to what we talked about today. I apologize for not being able to get them in. But if this topic has intrigued you, definitely you should go out and check out Kelly's work. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I just there. It's a weird thing for me because I grew up with a black stepmom. She'd always buy pickled pigs feed and all kinds of shit that that um, uh, most people, most folks that I knew weren't eating. Um, and I was very picky. I ate like three things in my entire life. So I at the time, so right. I didn't ever eat any of her food. Um, and you know she's she's still alive and kicking and healthy now um and every time i see her i like eat all of her food because it's so good (laughs) but she has this um sort of approach like you know she's like everybody sit down i'm cooking for you kind of thing right yeah yeah like a food is love sort of yeah exactly exactly and like i made i made a like a plate for her i made one for my mother too but i made a plate for her 
that for Mother's Day once that said mom on it or whatever, and she still displays that plate and uses it. It's a pasta plate. It's like a pasta platter Aww. and like uses it and like talks about it all the time. I can, you know, I can just see the, the culture around food um, for her. Her family's from Tennessee and in, in North Carolina. You can see a lot of those elements of the antebellum South still kind of surviving and being a part of like modern black culture. Uh-huh. Even for someone who she spent most of her life in Buffalo, New York, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and that's that's an interesting, I mean, that's such a good example, too, of how, in many ways, the Great Migration moved what was Southern black food mm-hmm. all around the United States, and it became soul food, mm-hmm. yep. right? And so soul food is not something that we necessarily consider Southern, although we all acknowledge that it has Southern roots, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and another example of how all of these foods just became American foods in a way, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, I I don't have, I really don't have a personal stake in Southern food other than um, my grandparents particularly loved it. They were not Southern in any way. Mm-hmm. They were very, very upstate New York. Um, but... They, I think for them, a lot of it was like that it was country food. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, and they thought of themselves as like simple country folk. Exactly. Right. And so I grew up literally every family vacation. We we always took road trips. We never flew. And so, what is the staple restaurant that's off of every highway in the United States? Cracker Barrel. So we would go to lit- we'd go to three Cracker Barrels a day if we were traveling with my grandparents. I'm not kidding. It was the only place they would go. And so I love it. And now when I travel to the South, if I'm giving a talk or something, that's the thing that I look forward to almost the most is, okay, this is my chance to like have catfish or something, mm-hmm. you know, because you you just can't get have that your grits kind of... with breakfast. Oh, I love grits so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I... I think maybe I'm an example of how all of this food just became part of the American palate Mm -hmm. in a way. The country food thing is really interesting because I think that, yeah, in some ways, like, yes, white people have sort of co-opted black food, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a hard thing because a lot of these white people were, were poor hillbilly white people living in the sticks, you know, Um, it's not, they, they can't possibly uh automatically have some type of kinship or connection to these like fancy antebellum um plantation owners correct and so they think of themselves as entirely different from that and as being part of this kind of poor country mm-hmm. sort of background um yeah no, that's a really important point that I wasn't able to, I didn't have time to talk about like Appalachian food culture, mm-hmm. for instance, which is Southern food, yeah. right? So I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but... Um, or New Orleans thing food, to, which is like a whole other thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But um, one thing to point out about that is that, that, that those food cultures are still part of the Southern food landscape, also rely on African staple crops, mm-hmm. right? Black-eyed peas, right. sorghum, all of those things inform even those, like, separate mm-hmm. 
white Southern food culture. So everything is just sort of mixed up in this really interesting, but also uniquely American food mm-hmm. soup. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why it's considered American food, because this right. particular American Southern context was the only context really able to give birth to that kind right. of cu- cuisine because right. of the specific combination of its ecology and its culture and its institutions and, you know, whatever. Um, it's really interesting. And it kind of makes me wonder what kind of um, sort of fusion cuisine they have in some place like Brazil where there were even yes. more Africans um, yeah. by a lot. I think there was 300,000 Africans brought to North America and then 8 million brought to Brazil. Yes. Um, right. And many of them died very young. The mortality rate was really high. But you would think that that incredibly dense African population, yeah, there must be even more of this mm-hmm. influence, like in Brazilian cuisine. Yeah, that's a good point. That would be that would be a fascinating thing to have an episode on. The only thing I know about Brazil is Brazilian barbecue, which is just like eat tons of meat at all times. Right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and I was just going to say that would be a great thing to have an episode on, but I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I am not qualified. I don't know to that I can the, do it either, but the Brazilian uh history of this, but but fascinating nevertheless. Mm-hmm. All right, we should probably cut ourselves off. Sure. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Um if you have any friends on Facebook who are talking about how Aunt Jemima was based on an a formerly enslaved woman who made millions of dollars, tell them that they're full of because that is not true. It is a completely fabricated story. Um, but also, if you want to get in touch with us, <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at dig underscore history. You can find us on Facebook. You can join our pod squad, which is our Facebook group, which is really fun. And we have lots of interesting conversations and share funny memes. Um, you can email us at hello at digpodcast.org. You can go to digpodcast.org. It's our website. Um, If you want to find transcripts of the episodes or show notes or images that go along with it, um, there's also a couple of tabs there that allow you to contact us or uh, read more about the podcast in general. Yeah, we also have a new section of our website, which is specifically for educators uh, with some ideas about how you can use our episodes in your syllabuses or in your lesson plans if you are using episodes in those ways please get in touch with us we would love to hear how they're working and your ideas about using podcasts in the classroom um oh gosh there was one other thing i was gonna say oh and don't forget um about your dig swag if you want a dig t-shirt and you know you do we have some really fantastic ones from our recent anniversary you can find our um our t public store linked there as well all right farewell enjoy some grits for me oh man shrimp and grits okay yeah bye bye the clanking of clangs <laughs> is it chains A clanking of clangs it's chains right okay yep, it's chains <laughs> I just thought maybe that's where clanking comes from before they were loaded onto ships. Nope. Yeah. Before they were loaded onto slave ships. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> um, Is that a significant number? Shut up, Marissa. <laughs>
<laughs> um, so we don't cover that territory here. And as April dis- No, so we- Sorry. So we won't. Yeah. D- did I say that? No, don't. You oh. said don't. <laughs> we don't cover that here. <laughs> right. Um, so we won't- Virginia plantations, for instance. Virginia plant- oh but instead had enslaved cooks who learned to cook as apprentices to older enslaved cooks, part of generations of enslaved cooks. Hang on, that's just lots of enslaved cooks, so hang on. <laughs> she wrote tons of cooks book. Oh my God. And 1,000 plantations. Cow peas, Wait, by the way, are black eyed 1,000 plantains. Oh, plantations. <laughs> 1,000 plantations. Okay. I need to give up, I need to stop here. Not only have we underappreciated Africa's role in the transport of crops specifically to be cultivated. What the f*** is wrong with me? Okay. You just said specific. Oh, sorry. No, no I started two. the sentence and skipped a bunch of stuff. April's episode, Sex and Chocolate, makes me, reminds me of that Marcy Playground song, Sex yes. and Candy. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I smell sex and chocolate. In the same way that other crops, um, tomatoes, peppers, corns, apples, also did. You just said corns. Corns. <laughs> in, in the same way that other crops, tomatoes, <laughs> now I'm not going to be able to do it. Why okay. is corns so funny? But it is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you just said corns. <laughs> um, I need to say, okay. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 